0: Well, good morning, church family. How are you doing? Great. We're in, we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 7 today. Well, you can see we're just plodding along one verse at a time. I hope that's okay with you. That's what, we're, that's what we're doing. There's a lot to cover here. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. We're going to read verses 2 through 12 in just a moment as we do every week. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. I don't think you're going to know the answer, but you might. What do Pope Francis, Antonin Scalia, and Marty Williams have in common? Nobody knows the answer to that one, do they? Pope Francis has been quoted as saying, A person who wants to build walls wherever they may be is not a Christian. The former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in 2016, once said, Devout Christians are destined to be regarded as fools in modern society. We are fools for Christ's sake. We must pray for courage to face the scorn of the sophisticated world. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Monty Williams, he's the, you may not know this, but he's the head coach of the Phoenix Suns in the NBA. His wife, Ingrid, died in a tragic car accident in 2016. And he delivered these lines while eulogizing her at her funeral. He said, my wife is in heaven. God loves us. God is love. And we walk away from this place today, let, as we walk away from this place, let's celebrate because my wife is where we all need to be. And I'm envious of that. We didn't lose her. When you lose something, you can't find it. I know exactly where my wife is. Let's not lose sight of what's important. God is important. What Christ did on the cross is important. So what do they all have in common? They all told us in their own way what a Christian is or is not. And the point is, we have before us the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, and we have defined for us here, within these verses, what it means to be a Christian. Let's read verses 2 through 12, and if you would just honor with me God's Word by standing, I'll lead us through that time. They won't be on the slides as per usual, but I, th- I think you about have these memorized by now. We're in Matthew speaking. He says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Jesus begins to speak, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word again today, we want to be faithful to the text, to your word in its singularity and in its context as a whole, and we pray for your Holy Spirit. It's the only way that can happen, Father. We pray for your Holy Spirit to to speak through me and to help us all to understand and and then to apply what we learn today to our lives, that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So what does it mean to be merciful? What comes to your mind when you think about about mercy? Is it kind of like grace? Is it kind of like compassion? Let ask you this, are we merciful? Do you see yourself as a merciful person? How do we become merciful? How, to whom should we display mercy? It's vital as we begin to answer these questions and examine Christ's call to mercy that we once again see this beatitude in light of all those that have preceded it. There's nothing haphazard going on here. There's a logical sequence to the beatitudes, a natural progression of thought. This, this beatitude telling us and calling us to be merciful flows out of all the others. And when we do the Word of God a, a great disservice if we attempt to isolate any one statement of the beatitudes or any Scripture at all in, in, the, in, the, tech, in, 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 in the Holy Bible uh, in and of itself without taking the context of the chapter and really of all of Scripture into view. Jesus first says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. We looked at that about a month ago. And, and we've seen that unless And until we realize that we are just that, we're we're poor in spirit, that we don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to our own righteousness. that, That as we stand before our Creator, our Father, our God and His righteousness, we are totally helpless. There's absolutely nothing we can do in and of our own power. So it follows then that we're led to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. We, we grieve over the sin that is within us. We grieve over the sin that we see in the world around us. And we come to see, as His Holy Spirit does His convicting work within us, the darkness of our heart. And we come to grasp what it means to, to cry out from the depths of, of our heart, Oh, what a wretched man am I! Who shall deliver me? We begin to have a desperate desire to purge the, the depravity we see in our lives. And then beyond that, we see the need for meekness blessed of the meek, Jesus said. We've come to have this more clear, more true picture of ourselves, and we begin to realize, once we have this more accurate picture of ourselves, that, that no one can really hurt us, no one can really insult us, no one can ever say anything too bad about us, because we know ourselves, we've seen ourselves, we know our true self, and we know that our greatest enemy couldn't possibly comprehend what we're capable of. We've seen ourselves looking from God's perspective. We know who we are. We know what we are capable of apart from Him. And it's because of that that we begin to feel this aching need, this hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We begin to long for it. We thirst and we hunger for the only righteousness that can bring us into right relationship with God the Father that will reconcile us to Him. And so it follows that if, that if we've experienced, if we've made these guiding principles for our lives, the Beatitudes I'm talking about, our attitude then begins to change. Our attitude toward everyone else begins to change. When, when all that is true of us, we begin to see our brothers and sisters in, in the church in a different light. We, we begin to love one another better. We begin to give one another the benefit of the doubt more often. We begin to make prayer for one another a priority. We become a church that's bent on outdoing one another in kindness. We avoid petty disagreements over secondary and tertiary issues. and instead we become a church. We become a church that's focused on glorifying the Father through obedience to all of His commands. And then when all that is true of us. We should also no longer see the lost people around us as we used to see them. Instead, we now see them through Christ's eyes. We see them as the helpless victims and slaves that they are, and as, once, as we once were, we see them as slaves to sin and slaves to Satan and to the pervasive worldliness that we all see around us every single day. We began to see those who, who have yet to receive Christ not as folks who are disliked or to be disliked or to, or to be ignored or to be, put in this special category because they're so different from us, but as men and women under the influence of the God of this world, as we once were, and but for the grace of God we would still be. We see them as such, and our heart begins to overflow with compassion. We look beyond their appearance, we look beyond their actions, and our whole attitude toward them is changed. In our world today, it's, it's so understanding that any of us could become hardened and uncaring. We, we get on the news or on the Internet and we, and we see all these tragic reports of uh, vicious acts, distressed people. We, saw, we see good being called evil and, and evil being called good. And it, and it almost seems like it's a necessary self-defense mechanism for us to begin to develop a kind of thick skin. But the issue is the difference between a thick skin and a hard heart is often difficult to differentiate. And instead of developing a, a, a thick skin with which we can cope with all the bad sad news what what some folks wind up doing they wind up with this hard and unsympathetic heart that 's just stewing in a, in, a, in a bitter cynical spirit and, and the result is that we see around us every day way too many people who do, who, who have this hardness they 've become this vengeful, unforgiving, pessimistic person, and we see this hardness they developed. To protect themselves from, from the cruel reality of the world and from their involvement in the world turns them into something they don't want to be, a negative and merciless person. But Jesus comes with good news. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Church families, we consider that clear command. We are faced as always with the obvious and challenging question of whether or not we're going to be obedient to that command or not. And yes, sometimes, maybe even often, it's not very easy. I said last Sunday, it's understandable how a person could develop a hard heart. That's the beauty of the blessing. Jesus knew how easy it is for us to allow our heart to become heart, even as He spoke these very words. And so He wanted us to understand something. He wanted us to understand the value of mercy. Jesus wants us to know, beloved, He wants us to know what a great and wonderful blessing mercy brings to all who display mercy, to all who give mercy. Now, can, can we just be honest here for a moment this morning and admit that sometimes there are certain folks that get under your skin? I've only been here for a little while, but maybe, maybe I've begun to do that to you. But there's somebody else out there, perhaps. And, tr- and try as we might, it, d- it just seems to happen. It seems like there's no escape from it. Some folks just have a way uh, of getting on our nerves, and so we become hard toward them, and we, towards them, and we, we distance ourselves from them emotionally, if not physically. We don't want to. We know it's wrong. We know we shouldn't feel like that, but we do. We, we know we ought to love them. We know we ought to embrace them. We know we ought to accept their differences, but we just can't find a way to do that within ourselves. We developed a hard heart toward them. The sad thing about that picture is that we're the ones who lose out. We tend to think about this statement, for they will receive mercy, with the idea that it's kind of a a tit-for-tat deal. But it's really not like that at all. And it's a simple illustration we can use to help us grasp This principle of mercy given and mercy received. Imagine for me mercy flowing through a kind of pipeline. And with a valve to that pipeline open, mercy can flow both ways. We can receive mercy and we can give mercy. When the valve is shut off, that mercy is shut off, it is cut off, it is denied to someone else, it's also denied to us. We can't receive mercy. So then whatever it is in us that that makes us unable to be merciful and, and to forgive also makes us unable to receive mercy, to receive forgiveness. Jesus says the fruit of forbearance toward others is God's forbearance toward us. He said it like this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. You, you remember these words. He said, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Let me, let me read to you from the, the message paraphrase of those verses. In prayer, there's a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part... You cut yourself off from God's part. Beloved, when we fail to show mercy, we become the losers in terms of receiving God's mercy ourselves. Now, I believe for the vast majority of us in this room, maybe every single person in this room, those of us who are allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we consider the Beatitudes, there is a desire. You have a desire to be more loving, you want to be more merciful. But sometimes I wonder if I can unlearn some things. You ever thought about that? Can we, it seems like we almost can unlearn things. We, sh, we, we just put them on the back burner. And if that's so, how can we relearn them? How can we bring them once again to the forefront? Are there some practical steps that we can take to develop into a more compassionate person? Or are there some things we can do to, become a more, to have a more merciful spirit? How can we, as as Jesus in this teaching urges us, become more tender-hearted, more kind, more forgiving? Well, the first thing we need to do, church family, is we must develop a Christ-like vision. We must develop a Christ-like vision. Most of us in this room, are, are probably just about all of you, are Just we're just busy folks. We're, 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 we're so busy. We're so important. We have all these... Goals. We have all these agendas. We have all these priorities. And in the push and shove of life, it becomes very easy to categorize individuals as either roadblocks or stepping stones, to evaluate them in terms of how they fit into our agenda, how they fit into our plans or whether they don't. And it can, can become very hard for us To to see each individual as significant in their own right, and more importantly, each individual as significant in God's eyes. The trap that we can all too easily fall into is to neatly categorize them by the label that is most expedient to us. We'll say of a person, well, that that young man, he's a winner. Or "That, that girl, she's a loser. She's just a loser. Or this young man is nothing but trouble. Or that young woman, she's extraordinary. And we tend to focus our attention and our affection on those who fit into our special categories. But the reality is, beloved, God loves everyone equally. Even those who are, in our estimation, losers, unspectacular, average, dull, unattractive. God loves the inmate, the addict the pregnant teenager, the homeless guy panhandling for a buck. God loves them all just as much as He loves professors and physicians and pastors and teachers and therapists and bankers and businessmen and millionaires and movie stars. Just as much as He loves you and He loves me. All people are special in the eyes of God. The waitress who serves your dinner at Sterling's, The checkout guy at Walmart, the young woman who cleans up your car at the car wash, wash, the young man with the pierced everything who takes your order at McDonald's. They're all special in God's eyes. Henri Nouwen writes in The Wounded Healer, Compassion is born when we discover in the center of our own existence not only that God is God and man is man, but also that our neighbor is really our fellow man. Every single person is is important to God. Even the, even the maniac who insists that you go first at the four-way stop sign when he clearly got there before you did. That's happened to y'all too, hasn't it? Yeah. I don't, why, why do people do that? I don't know. And yes, even the person who's insulted you or, or wounded you and made you so angry that you could just spit. In fact, they're all so important that God the Father sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for all who would believe, just like He did for you and me. So I want you to think about that the next time you dismiss someone whom you've deemed deemed unimportant as just part of the background scenery. I want you to think about the fact that in their own way, each of those individuals has goals and dreams and families. Each one is a uniquely special person in the eyes of God. Each one is just as important as you are or I am. And we need to pray, God, help us to see, folks, through our eyes. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So seeing with a Christ-like vision can be a giant step toward a merciful, tender-hearted, forgiving attitude. And another equally important step is to learn how to feel as others feel, to develop a genuinely compassionate understanding. If we're to to be merciful, forgiving people, we've got to learn how to relate with people. We've got to learn how to identify with people. We've got to climb into their situation and learn as best we can to feel as they feel. As the old saying goes, we must learn to walk a mile in their shoes. It's so easy to stand off from someone at a distance and, and pass judgment concerning their situation. It's so easy to tell someone what, what they ought to do when, when we haven't lived through what they've lived through. But there's something about going through a hard time that gives you a different perspective. When you've felt the pain, when you've suffered the loss, when you've endured the crushing blow, it's altogether different. And not all of us, praise God, can experience everything that life deals out. But, but we can make an honest attempt to consider what it would be like if we were in their situation. How do you suppose it feels to be handicapped, unable to walk or to stand or to drive or to take care of yourself? How do you suppose it feels to be unemployed with bills to pay and a family to feed? How does it feel to be an ethnic person in a culture where no one else speaks the language that you speak? How would it feel to be divorced, Struggling with the pain of having the person you loved reject you? How would it feel to be widowed, to lose a child, or a parent? How do you suppose it would feel to have cancer, or Alzheimer's, or suffer from a debilitating stroke? On an even more common scale, how, how do you think it would feel to be really dis- distressed, to be full of despair, and to not even know why? How would it feel to be all alone? And unloved. How would it feel to be full of doubt and fear? The point is, is, is that we need to climb into someone else's situation, at least mentally, and to try to begin to grasp who they are and what their life is like. And once we do, we might find it easier to show some tender hearted love and some forgiveness. Paul writes in Colossians 3, chapter 12, and verse 13. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. So, so when we, we at least make an attempt to understand how someone else might feel, what they might be dealing with, what their life might be like for them, we have a chance to understand why they act and react as they do. It's the difference between trying to be empathetic and trying to be sympathetic. Sympathy is a good thing. It's feeling sorry for someone else's hurt and pain. Yet there's, there's some emotional distance with sympathy. You're not experiencing the pain for yourself. You're saying, again, a good thing. You're saying, you know, I'm really sorry that you're having to go through this. But empathy takes things a little deeper. Empathy is the ability to experience for yourself some of the pain that the other person may actually be experiencing. It's an acknowledgement of our shared experience as humans and this recognition that we all feel grief. We all feel Feel fear. We all feel pain and loss. And, and we don't have to experience exactly the same events as the person suffering to, to feel deeply for them. But, but the ability to, 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 to viscerally feel what some else, someone else is going through can be, is often strengthened by a similar experience. Some of you might know my mother took her own life in 1996, she was 59 years old tragic day for us it's still tragedy and, and I'm, I mourn every time I think about it which is very often and I wonder of what value that could be for me in, in, in my life and in my ministry and, and I was the pastor at First Baptist Church Boaz after I left First Baptist Church Kennewick here in 2007 and unfortunately I had the opportunity to minister to several families there who lost loved ones who took their own lives and I remember one particular lady Carolyn uh I got the news that she had just gotten the news that her brother had taken his own life, and I went straightway to her home, of course, and went into the, into the, to the kitchen, into the living room. I, I could still see her sitting there. Uh, just kind of, She had collapsed in the middle of the living room floor, and, and she had several friends gathered around her, and they were just crying and, and hugging. And she looked up at me, and through her tears, she said, You don't know. You can't. Oh, that's right. You do know. And I just got down on the floor with her, and I cried with her, and we hugged, and, and we prayed together. And it was a, a wonderful way that God allowed me to minister and, and to empathize with her because I had been through that. And unfortunately, we had the opportunity to do that as well in the loss of our children, Chris in 2015, and before him, Courtney in 2008, and other stories for other days. Now in rights. Who can listen to a story of loneliness and despair without taking the risk of experiencing similar pains in his own heart and even losing his precious peace of mind? In short, who can take away suffering without entering into it? Beloved understanding. That's all people really need. They need understanding. Richard Seltzer, in his book, Mortal Lessons, writes these moving lines. It's from the perspective of a physician looking at his patient. He writes, I stand by the bed where the young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands at the opposite side of the bed, and all together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, so greedily? The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, it will, I said, because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles and says, I like it. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with such a majestic moment. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. But understanding, understanding and and tender, compassionate love, there is no substitute. And that's the stuff of real mercy. We've got to have a Christ-like vision, a compassionate understanding, and then there must also be a committed response. So what we're talking about is, is trying to see others as Christ sees them and then trying to put ourselves in their shoes as best we can, to, to try to feel as best we can what they feel, and then finally to take action, to respond, to do something about it. It's really a matter, not to, be over, not to oversimplify it, it's really a matter of loving as Christ loved. That's what Christ did for us, and that's what we ought to be doing for others. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says, on the mountain. Those who are the merciful ones are the ones who are truly blessed. And and why? Jesus answers the question because they will be shown mercy. That's the blessing. Those who purposefully respond with mercy, Jesus says, are shown mercy. They are the witnesses to the grace of God. They are blessed because they are testimonies to a greater goodness. Forgiving others, you see, allows us To see how God has forgiven us. The dynamic of giving mercy is the key to understanding mercy. Let me say that again. The dynamic of giving mercy is the key to understanding mercy. For it's when we forgive others that we begin to feel something of what God feels. Jesus on one occasion told a story it's in Matthew 18 it's the parable of the unforgiving servant you're very familiar with it you know it's the story of the king who decided to call in all of his outstanding accounts so he, he gathers up all of his debtors and he demands payment for what is rightfully due him there's one particular man whose debt was enormous Is more than he could ever hope to pay in several lifetimes, just impossible. But as Jesus tells the story, the king, when he saw this man and heard his story, his heart is just rent. And because it so touched his heart, he forgave that man this giant debt. I mean, can you imagine a debt so significant that you couldn't pay it back if you lived multiple lifetimes totally gone in just an instant? When Jesus continues this story... He continues with what this recently forgiven man does immediately after leaving the king's presence. He's leaving the palace grounds. You remember the story. And he runs into this other employee of the king who happens to owe him, not the king, but him, a fairly insignificant amount of money. I mean, certainly insignificant in the context of the ginormous amount of money that he was just forgiven. And we think he's just going to embrace this guy and say, man, it's okay, man, it's all going to be good but no he didn't do that he doesn't do what we'd expect at all he wraps his his hands not around the guy's shoulders but around the guy's neck and he attempts to choke out of him the money that's owed him he demands payment immediately right now or he'll have the guy thrown into prison of course the fellow begs for mercy no mercy is given and instead the one who'd been forgiven so much had his debtor thrown into prison of course when the news got back to the king he's furious And Jesus says, and in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Great story about the boundless mercy of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We wonder that someone who had actually been forgiven a debt of multiple millions could turn around and be unable or unwilling to forgive someone a debt of hundreds of dollars. We wonder how a person could be set free as this man was and then turn right around and imprison his brother for far less. But you know, we don't have to have our doctorate in theology to figure this out. All we need to do is look in the mirror tomorrow morning when we brush our teeth. Is there any one of us who's not come to this place desperate for God's mercy on Sunday and then went right out on Monday and demanded justice for what we felt we had coming. Which one of us has, been, has not been more of a bottleneck than a conduit when it comes to, to giving mercy and love? Is there one here who from time to time has shown contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Let me answer for you. Yes, we've all been there some of us more recently more often than we'd like to admit but the good news is that because we have the grace of christ in us because we have christ living in us we can show mercy and if we do so we will obtain mercy you and i can be merciful beloved only because of the grace of god so i would suggest to you that it really comes down to this if you're not merciful there's only one explanation you have never truly understood the grace and mercy of God. And it makes one wonder if that person is yet without Christ, yet in their sins, yet unforgiven. If we would learn to show mercy, it will be because we learn to love as Christ loves. And just think of what would happen if we would do this. I believe, or truly believe, that the results would be extraordinary. People would be wondering, what happened to those folks out at Richland Baptist Church? Our spouses and our children would be overjoyed. The superficial relationships that we have would be deepened. Our church would be filled as people discovered that this is a place they can come to and find acceptance and love and, and, and real forgiveness. Beloved, mercy is meeting people's needs, it's not simply a warm feeling. Mercy is something that we do. Jesus said, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now, of course, there's there's some risk in living this way. Some of us might be afraid that, that we'll be hurt. We've been hurt before if we truly love others. C.S. Lewis addressed this fear well when he said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly will be certainly wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. So yes, there's danger in loving. But beloved, there's greater danger in not loving. The danger is that your heart grows hard. Your heart grows unforgiving. You become this bitter person with this sour spirit. If you want to be able... To break through, maybe maybe you hear you've got you feel like maybe you've got this kind of shell of hardness that's grown around your heart, beloved. I just want to tell you you've got to choose to love other people. If you don't, you will always have a hard time forgiving others. You will always have a hard time displaying mercy. May we become those whose lives are characterized by showing mercy because we need mercy, because other folks need mercy, and because Jesus was the perfect example of mercy. You remember, as He hung there on the cross, Jesus said many things, but among them, He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The words that His tormentors had earlier screamed are turned back on them. They, They had shouted, He saved others, He can't save Himself. He's the King of Israel, let Him come down now from the cross and we will believe in Him. But in fact, Jesus shows His kingship by not saving Himself. The reality is, there's only one person that Jesus cannot save. He can either save you or He can save Himself. He can either die in your place that you might go free or He can save Himself and leave you to perish. And He chose to save you. What would you say if you were in Jesus' situation? What would be on your mind, on your lips, Would you be thirsting for revenge against the people who had done this to you? Would be you be overwhelmed by the by the sheer unfairness of it all? Scream silent curses at the people who were mocking you and plot to wipe that smug look off their faces and look forward to the day when they would eat their words. I'll just be honest with you, I, I I can see myself thinking like that. I can see myself saying those words. It knelt to the cross. Jesus speaks. He's got limited time left. He's only got so much air. He needs to choose His words so very carefully. And, and now hear again the words of our mocked and tortured and dying Savior. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. There He is hanging on the cross. His life's ebbing away and His concern is for His tormentors. He cares about the fact that they are heaping up condemnation and damnation for themselves, and so He prays for their gift, for their forgiveness, and He adds, hey, they don't even know what they're doing after all. And that's the wonder of the cross. On the, on the cross, God the Father placed on God the Son the sins of all the people. All His people. At the cross, Jesus died not in mere physical agony, but in spiritual agony as He drank the cup. He drank every drop of the cup that was meant for you and me. He drank it to the dregs. He drank it all as He took the, the justice that our sins against God deserve. Jesus paid the price for all of the selfishness, greed, envy, cowardice, laziness and foolishness that stood around the cross that day he took the death sentence that he alone did not deserve god himself paid the price for everyone who would believe who was there at Golgotha that day and for everyone throughout time who would believe and listen jesus did not only ask for people to be forgiven he made it possible for them to be forgiven It's amazing what Jesus did for those people there that day in spite of themselves. It's amazing what Jesus has done for us in spite of ourselves. God's Son knew, after all, what we would turn out to be like. He knew all of our faults and failures, all of our sins, all of our weaknesses, and He died for us anyway. He wanted to forgive us so much that He walked deliberately to His own death. For you see, mercy comes with cost. And for God's Son, mercy cost His own life. We need to be merciful because we need to be like Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Would you pray with me? Father, as always, when we reflect upon your words, whether we read them in our own private devotional or hear them proclaimed from the pulpit, Uh, we are brought under conviction for our failure for our failures to obey all that your word has commanded us to obey and father when we think about mercy and the mercy we see displayed by your son Jesus and saw displayed there at the cross the mercy that's been poured out upon us we recognize that we fall far short in giving mercy and father and We've been reminded today that when we do that we miss out on the blessing of mercy ourselves so I pray Father that you just help us today as we leave this place as we go into our into our schools or into our workplaces into our homes and our neighborhoods Father help us to be more mindful of what it means to be merciful to see others as you see them to try to get to know them and understand them and enter into their woundedness Father and then to, to, to take action to do what we can do in our, with our own resources and with your guiding help to display mercy toward them. Father, I want to pray for those who are here to struggle with this, this whole idea. They've, they've been hurt. Father, they've been wounded grievously. They've suffered great loss and, and they don't feel like they have received much mercy. Remind them today how merciful you have been. Father, that they might Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and learn what it means to love like Jesus loved. Once again, thank you, Father, for this time together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.